It's muggy in here. If you guys are sitting by a window and you want some more breeze, feel free to open it up a bit more. Um, I don't mind in the least. This is our, uh, our last week in the parables before we do a little hiatus to head down to the waterfront. We'll be doing a, a specific preaching series down there that we're calling You Have Heard It Said, where we're going to tackle some maybe misunderstandings that people have had about the Christian faith. So we'll be looking at things like Christianity is anti-science, or Christianity is a white man's religion, or things like that that uh, I think are important cultural and theological things for us to work through. But we are going to finish up the parables here and then pick them up again in August when we're back in the building. And if you're going to follow along with me in your Bible today, um, or on your Bible app, or whatever it is you use, maybe you're just going to watch the screen, and that's fine. You can turn to Matthew chapter 18. That's where we're going to be hanging out today. And I think it's important before we read the parable to kind of dig into what Matthew 18 is about. Uh, That there is a reason Jesus is teaching this parable. It goes along with what is happening at the time. And sometimes if we just kind of pull the parable out of its context, we're not going to understand it in the way that Jesus intended it to be understood. So Matthew chapter 18 has this story, you may remember the parable of the the 99 sheep, right? And Jesus goes and and he talks about the the shepherd that goes and gets the one. And then he he brings it back and he rejoices over the, the one sheep. And then there's this section in chapter 18 that talks about how do we deal with forgiving those who have wronged us, especially in the church. There's this section where if a brother or sister sins, and the language that's used there, a brother or sister, is talking about those who are part of Christ's community. When a brother or sister sins, when we deal with those kind of sin issues, we're to go and we're going to speak to them directly. We're not going to gossip about it. We're not going to go and tell someone else. We're going to go and speak to them specifically about the issue. If there's, not for, if there's not repentance, if there's not acknowledgement of the sin, then maybe we need to bring in two or three witnesses. Maybe at some point, if they're hard-hearted, we need to bring before the church. But the section right before this parable that we're dealing with today is talking about how do we deal with the issue of sin and forgiveness in the church. Then, Peter asks this question. This is part of our reading today. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations render it 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, And let him go. 
But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Jesus, as we hear your words, would you speak to us? As we wrestle with this story, with this parable, would we see it through your eyes? Maybe not our own. But Spirit, would you show us how you are speaking to each of us directly through the words of Christ this morning? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, I was reading from the New International Version, um, which, you know, usually I'm pretty good with the NIV and how it, it translates uh, Scripture. But there's some confusion, I think, in how the NIV has gone about making some translation decisions in this story that make it a bit confusing for us or maybe help to cloud the point that's being made. And I'm talking about the, the way that it translates the words bags of gold and silver coins. Now, if you have a different translation that you are following along with, it may have translated it as talents instead of bags of gold and denarii, or denarius, as a silver coin. And, and this, is, this is a little bit of cultural context, of going back, not being 21st century Kings County residents, but going back and being 1st century Jews for a little bit into Jesus' world. When we read in NIV that uh, there were 10,000 bags of gold, the NIV people were probably like, no one's going to know what a talent is, so we'll just say it's a big bag of gold. We need to understand what they're talking about. A talent, which isn't like, I'm really good at juggling talent. A talent was a weight of currency, which was equivalent to about 20 years worth of labor. So it was a lot of money. I don't think bags of gold does justice to understanding 20 years worth of pay. And so 10,000 talents, 10,000 bags of gold that this servant owed his master, if you were to add it up, is like 200,000 years worth of labor. It's, it's crazy. Like it, it, it's an impossible debt to pay off unless you're making a salary like Herod the Great was or something like that. No one in their lifetime would be able to pay off this debt. We also need to keep in mind that the silver coins, the way they translated that, a denarius, a denarius was equivalent to about one day's labor. So when the other servant owes a servant a hundred denarii, it means he owes them a hundred days labor or so. You know, just over three months' work is what he owes the other guy. 
This helps us, I think, kind of cut through the fog of the translation a bit to understand when this parable is talking about these two servants that had debt, one to the master and one servant owing the other servant something, it is making a ridiculous contrast in what the two debts actually are. One debt, the the debt that the master forgives his servant, is a debt that this servant would never be able to pay off on his own. It's a a debt that, that he had no hope of paying off. No wonder the only option was to sell him and his family into slavery and everything they owned in order to get this debt back. It was a ridiculous kind of debt. And the other guy owned about three months' worth of work to the other servant. This parable is purposely showing us the ridiculous difference between these two debts and showing us the ridiculous difference between the king's forgiveness of his servant and how crazy the servant's unforgiveness of his his co-worker in light of that. As we read through this parable and as we wrestle through it, as we're sweating here in this sanctuary, the question that we should be asking ourselves is if we have experienced God's unrepayable forgiveness, if our debt has been canceled, who are we to withhold forgiveness to others? This is the big question. And I'm just going to repeat it kind of over and over in a bunch of different ways this morning. And if you zone out now or fall into sleep because of the humidity and just catch that one phrase, you're good. If we have experienced God's great forgiveness, who are we to withhold forgiveness to others? Do we understand the enormity of the debt of sin that we have been forgiven? This unrepayable debt. The the significant point that Jesus is trying to get across in, in speaking this parable to his followers in the context of forgiving sin in the church is that the radical forgiveness that we receive requires a response from us. A response to live a radically forgiving life. To receive God's forgiveness is to show that forgiveness. To be a follower of Jesus is to live a life of forgiveness in light of how we have been forgiven. You're getting the point of what I'm getting at today. And this this isn't just some like, Jesus mentions it once, you know, crazy kind of out there, left field, hippie interpretation of what Jesus has to say. Now, this is, this is core to Jesus' teaching. In fact, let's go to one of the kind of epitomes of Jesus' teaching of what it means to be in relationship to God, the Lord's Prayer, right? If you grew up in the church, you probably have it memorized, probably in like some adaptation of the King James Version where uh, we say, forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespassed against us. 
I was trying to look for that in a Bible translation, and most of them actually render it as forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Which, in terms of putting a sermon together, fits quite nicely with what I'm talking about. The Lord's Prayer asks for our sins, our debts, our trespasses to be forgiven by God as we also have forgiven our debtors. As we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. And what's interesting is right after Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, he adds this in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forget, forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is heavy. This makes me uncomfortable reading it. I, I don't know about you. Maybe like you're reading this and you're like, okay, that's, that's great that that's there, but I'm saved by my faith and not by works. And, you know, if I'm... If my forgiveness is dependent on me forgiving others, then that's like I'm saved by my works, and that can't be right. We need to wrestle with this. What does it mean to be saved by our faith, but also to be forgiven because we are forgiving others? I think it's helpful for us to wrestle with this. To wrestle with the tension of I want to say, yes, I am saved by my faith. But also, there is this very apparent reality that Jesus is teaching of where our forgiveness with God goes hand in hand with our forgiveness of others. What does it mean to have a faith that brings forgiveness? Maybe it is talking about a living faith. Maybe in the words of James, the brother of Jesus, who probably wrestled through Jesus' teachings more than anyone else. Like, imagine your brother being the Messiah and what that would mean in terms of wrestling with everything he's ever said. But James, in his second letter, or his second chapter of his letter, he says this, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. We're being confronted in the teachings of Jesus in the way that God's forgiveness and our forgiveness of others go hand in hand are going to challenge us to not just accept forgiveness, but to be people of forgiveness. If we are not people who are people of forgiveness, it should cause us into question whether we truly grasp the forgiveness we have received. If you've uh, been around over the last few weeks, you've heard me go on about this lovely book I've been reading by Klein Snodgrass who has kind of written the book on the parables. Quite a guy. This is a screen grab I, uh, I took of him. Hard to find a flattering picture of the poor guy. But he, he says this about this parable. 
God's mercy must not be treated cavalierly. Mercy is not effectively received unless it is shown. For God's mercy transforms. If God's mercy does not take root in the heart, it is not experienced. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. The merciless attitude of the servant in the parable that Jesus teaches gives us a pretty good indication that he doesn't actually grasp what it is that he's been forgiven, that his debt has been canceled, that he has received the king's mercy. Yes, he pleaded that he wouldn't be sold into slavery, that his possessions and family wouldn't be sold off. But his actions show that he doesn't get it. He doesn't get the magnitude of what it was. As Christians, those of us who have received God's mercy through Christ's death on the cross, do we know that mercy? Are we quick to be merciless with those who have wronged us? Are our lives marked with the forgiveness that we've received? I'll tell you this week, um, this parable has helped me wrestle through the really complicated and difficult issue of the residential school situation, where I am trying to wrap my mind around people who claim to follow the resurrected Jesus were able to abuse and dehumanize and murder indigenous children. Like, that doesn't, I, I don't know how to make sense of that. And I think this parable has kind of maybe given me some language or a framework to, to work through this, that if, if mercy is not shown, if we are not people of mercy or forgiveness, it is doubtful that we have understood the mercy and forgiveness of God. I don't know how you could be a, a priest or a nun or church official who helps run a residential school who is burying the bodies of kids out back and beating and dehumanizing them and claim to know the forgiveness and mercy of God. I think there is some parallels to be drawn of the servant in this parable. And Jesus' explanation at the very tail end of this parable weighs heavy. Especially in light of that. He says in verse 35, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. This is the verse right after he talks about how the king sent the servant over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. That's uncomfortable. And I, I've read from different commentators this week, some saying, well, this is a, a, a picture of, of hell. Or others who are saying, well, we need to be careful of not saying this is a picture of God, but actually an analogy of God. 
and that God doesn't have torturers that he's throwing people to, but there are dire and brutal consequences for unforgiveness. However we wrestle with how to understand this, I think it's very clear that there are dire consequences for when our our response is unforgiveness in light of being recipients of God's forgiveness. This last verse also highlights the context that we were talking about of if you are not forgiving a brother or sister from your heart. And listen, we may not be dealing with the kind of residential school level kind of of craziness in terms of the disconnect between the mercy and forgiveness we've received and what we are perpetrating to others. But we might have some church conflict. We might have some difficulty with other people in the room or in our community. Matthew chapter 18 is answering Peter's question about forgiving people in the church. How many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? Like I can count seven times on two hands and those fingers go down pretty quick. Jesus' response is 70 times seven or 77 times. In other words, don't count it on your hands. This may be one of the harder places to learn to practice forgiveness, but where else are we going to do it in the church? Sometimes I think we struggle with forgiveness getting played out here because we have an expectation of each other. We're we're Christians, and so we shouldn't be doing things wrong, and so I'm going to be hesitant to forgive you because you know better. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a sinner. And because of that, there is forgiveness that we all need. We've received great forgiveness from God, but we need to show forgiveness to each other. If we aren't able to do it here, where we have a mutual understanding that we have received the forgiveness of God, where can we do it? Where I'm able to work through a conflict with a brother in Christ who also understands that we've been, we are sinners who have received the forgiveness of God. We have an understanding and common foundation, and so reconciliation can, like it makes sense there. That, that's, that's where we can start and learn, because when we're in the workplace, and we have a conflict with someone, and we don't have that common foundation of, oh, I know that I've received the forgiveness of God, Conflict is going, to be, is going to escalate a lot more. We're going to be a lot more defensive. We need to be able to work out reconciliation and forgiveness here if we're ever going to see it take place in other arenas in our life. And I know the tension. I know that being the one who takes the first step towards forgiveness when there's conflict, can sometimes feel like 
I am giving up the, the right to be right in this conflict. I'm giving up the right to kind of have the, to be up on the pedestal as the, the blameless one in the situation, maybe. Maybe sometimes we feel like forgiving someone and taking that step means that I'm saying it's totally okay what they did. That it's fine. And I think we need to be careful with that. Even in, as, I, as I teach my kids of like how to say sorry and to, to go about reconciliation, some of you have had my kids go up to you and forcibly like say sorry. But, but there's something to say, to respond to, I'm sorry with I forgive you and not it's okay. Right? Forgiveness doesn't mean that the act that happened initially is it's, it's a now morally neutral thing that has taken place. But to be able to say, I forgive you, is a way of saying, I'm no longer going to hold that over your head. I'm no longer going to pretend like I have leverage on you. Sin must be confronted. But forgiveness always needs to be extended. Maybe this teaching is scaring you. And you're experiencing some fear this morning as we talk about God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness going hand in hand because you know that some of the things that have happened to you, you're saying, I I don't know if I can actually forgive. And I'm worried that my lack of forgiveness is going to get in the way of, of my forgiveness from God. And you are genuinely working through that fear and that hurt. And I want you to know that I see you in that and to know that forgiveness is a process. I think there is something to be said about the the time that it takes for this to, to take root in our heart. That we may not understand the fullness of God's forgiveness all in an instant. But if we are going to be people of forgiveness, it's something that we are working towards our whole lives. To make the choice in moments to be a person of forgiveness. I also believe that there is an empowering reality to being a child of God where the Spirit is actually bringing about the fruit of our redemption and that includes us looking like Jesus in how we forgive. And something about being a child of God means you are going to have a supernatural ability to forgive that only comes from the fact that you have experienced God's forgiveness. We stand in our identity as forgiven children of God. And as we do that, we will be empowered to forgive. The heart of this is to be people of forgiveness to let our lives be marked with forgiveness. And I think that as we do that, we are preaching the gospel in one of the loudest ways possible. Listen, I don't think people in the West, in the 21st century, respond well to a soapbox street corner preacher. I I don't think that that is the most efficient form of evangelism. 
but I know people seeing the radical forgiveness of Christians in light of the forgiveness that they've received is a powerful testimony. I want to tell you a story about a, um, a young woman who attends our Cornwall site. Two summers ago, in 2019, she was driving over the crest of a hill right at like sunset, right when like the sun is in your eyes. You know what I mean? You're driven down Queens Road right at sunset, and it's like, I, I just, I'm just staying straight. You know what I mean? She was coming over to the crest of a hill at sunset. And over the crest of the hill was an Amish horse and buggy. And as she crested the hill, she hit the buggy. And one of the people in the buggy died from that collision. She was wrecked. She was crucified online because everyone assumed she was on her phone. But she met with one of our pastors and her family, and she went to the home of this Amish family to sit with them, to grieve, to express her deep, destroying remorse that she felt. And she sat there as the, the mother of the girl who was killed in the horse and buggy, Irma was her name, looked her in the eye and said, I forgive you. A forgiveness that she's able to extend because she knows the forgiveness of And this changed this girl's life. Where she, like we do when we're young and trying to explore the world, was headed down a path. But being confronted with a radical kind of forgiveness that only comes from knowing the forgiveness of Jesus stopped her in her tracks. And she said, I... I knew in that moment I needed to take God seriously. She got baptized last summer in the midst of the pandemic. In last, last July, I think it was June or July, when we did our kind of online live stream baptisms, you can find her testimony on our YouTube page. But I think it's the perfect way of, of, of seeing how the kind of forgiveness that comes because we know we've been forgiven is actually what is going to cut to the heart. This is the real life stuff of, I don't just like, yeah, believe the right things and I can check the list. But this is how the gospel has affected me. I know what I've been forgiven for. I know that a debt that I couldn't pay back has been canceled for me. So I'm going to be a person who forgives. Let's pray. Jesus, on the cross, you did what we would never be able to do. You paid our debt of sin. And Jesus, we, we'll, we'll never be able to pay that back 
but we give you our lives. We'll follow you. And as we follow you, Jesus, would you help us to show that radical kind of forgiveness that you've shown us? Would we be those who are willing to set aside our pride for forgiveness? Would we be those, Lord, who experience your healing from hurt and see the freedom that forgiveness actually brings in the midst of that? Lord, would we learn from the hard parable of the unforgiving servant and be a church that forgives in the way that you have forgiven. It's in your name we pray. Amen.